0: Good evening, everyone. I'm excited to be here, very thankful to be here. Now, last time that I was at your evening service, Kevin had an awesome message. And you remember he brought a fire pit, fire, what else did he have, logs, all this crazy stuff. And all I bought brought was this tiny little Lego helicopter. And I said it right here when I came in. I went to the back to greet a few people, and I looked up and it was gone. <laughs> my only prop Nick thought it belonged to Vicky who put it on her little stand up there, but it was mine. Hold on a second, I have to secure my here we go, okay. These things scare me because I can't sing, and so I try to keep them as far away from me as I can when I'm in the pew, just in case it's on, you know? Nobody wants to hear this. Um, I'm very glad to be here. The message tonight is called Living in Awe Instead of Awe. What do you think? You like it? We are supposed to live in awe instead of awe, but I don't know about you, so often I don't. I stand around, I sit around, and I think to myself, ah. But that's not the way that we're meant to live. And that's what this message is about. It's about living in a true sense of awe. And I want to tell you that um, I can be as goofy as the next person. The people that know me know that I love to have fun. But when it's time for God's Word to go forth, it is a serious, serious time. And I want to tell you that God's Word is so powerful. Hebrews chapter 4.12 tells us that it's living and active. How many of you know that verse? sharper than a two-edged sword. And I want to tell you in a very serious way, I had the opportunity last weekend to share with two Alliance women group, women's groups. Friday I spoke, Saturday I spoke, and I was getting ready for this message, of course, getting ready for the big Alliance women's retreat. I've been doing a lot of speaking in a compact period of time, and every demon in hell has been unleashed upon my life. I'm telling you all. And that's how I know this is going to be good this evening. And I mean that with all my heart. I said to my best friend, I mean, I'm telling you, when you seek to preach the word of God in its true power, the enemy knows. And every power in hell has been unleashed. I sat on the two-seater. My husband's out of town. I was sitting on my two-seater yesterday morning, and I just sensed this attack on me, and I had to speak out loud and say, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to go forward. Bring it on, devil. I don't care what you have to bring because the Word of God sets people free. Amen? So I'm excited for tonight. I want to share directly from God's Word. If you have your Bible with you, it is up on the PowerPoint. But if you're like me, boy, I love to hold my Bible. Anybody else like to hold and carry around their Bible? Now, at my age, when I speak now, I have reading glasses. So I do appreciate the PowerPoint because you got to take these things on and off. But I love to hold a Bible. And what I want you to do is turn to Psalm chapter 33. This is going to come directly from Psalm 33, verses 6 through 11. And I do want to pray before I speak, because like I said, I know that the Holy Spirit wants to speak specific things to specific people straight from His Word. There's nothing that I have to say that could ever change your life, but what God says will do awesome awesome things so would you pray with me father we come before you this evening and i've known in a very real sense for the past few weeks of my life that your word is very real and that you mean to do serious things in the spiritual realm when we gather together in your name i thank you so much for norwin alliance church and for the light of Jesus Christ that goes forth from this place. Father, for the way that you are honored in the things that are done. And I thank you that on this Sunday evening, this Mother's Day evening, this number of people has gathered together because we are hungry for you, God. No matter what entertainment, no matter what things the world has to offer, it cannot compare and we are left hungry unless we feed upon your word. So I thank you that you're with us tonight. And I pray for my heart and every heart that is in this place. That you would cleanse us from our sin and break us and open us to hear what you are saying. Lord, you have worked in my own life through this message. And are teaching me a lot of things. And I pray that others would learn from you as well. We need deep, deep in our hearts to know who you are. And to live that truth out. And I am praying that you do great things by your word. Thank you for Psalm 33. Thank you for Jesus Christ. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here with us in the sanctuary tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 33, beginning at verse 6. Let me get my clicker here. I'll put it up there on the screen. Uh I hope that you will You know what I try to do is if God speaks to my heart through his scripture I try to do whatever I can to get that scripture memorized so I can meditate on it all the time and that's what we ought to do. We ought to have this in our heart. Psalm 33 beginning at verse 6 says by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Now the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, and He frustrates the plans of the peoples. But the counsel of the Lord stands how long? Forever. And the plans of His heart from generation to generation. Whew. This is a powerful, powerful scripture. And we're going to start right at verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. I think it's very important for us as Christians, we get caught up in this culture today of different how-to books, and Jesus can do this for you, and God can do that for you. And I think sometimes what happens is we don't go back to the basics of what is the treasure of God in his word. And square one in the book of Genesis is that God made everything out of nothing. Now, this is important to keep in our minds. It is a fact because so many times in my life, I have thought to myself, in this area of life, I am down to nothing. Have you ever felt like, like, like that? My emotions are down to nothing. My health is down to nothing. My hope is down to Nothing. But Genesis can help you out to remind you that God can make something out of nothing. Can anybody else do that? No. Now, to give you an example of what I'm talking about, how many people in this room know that Mrs. Prindle's favorite thing is what, Annalise? Legos. Other than God in the Bible, of course. I love Legos. Now, I kid you not. If you come to my house, one of the coffee tables in my living room is adorned with a Lego sun house and a Lego airplane. I love Legos. I love to build them. I think they're the coolest thing. Uh, this helicopter here was actually a gift from one of the first grade students where I was a principal at. Isn't that cool? They'd get me Legos for Christmas, Legos for my birthday. And I'll never forget when Kylie gave me this for my birthday in March And uh, I went to the first grade room one day to check on the first graders, see what they were doing, hang out a little bit, you know. And Kylie said to me, did you like the helicopter I got you? And I said, I loved it. It's Legos. It's so cool. And she said, well, did you build it yet? And I said, no. And I could see her face just dropped, you know. So I went into my principal's office and I did what every good principal would do on a Monday afternoon built Legos. It was awesome. So I went and I built a set, and she was so happy. But I'll tell you what, I love Legos, and I always have. Growing up, my mom and dad always made sure that I had Legos, okay? One of the things that I would do with Legos is I would build Lego mansions. You know the coveted green platform pieces? They're so expensive to buy. Well, back when I was a kid, they were like this big, and I would try to collect as many as I could. I'd get like 13 or 14 of those pieces, connect them in different configurations, and build a mansion out of it. Now, I wouldn't put a roof on the mansion or very high walls because the point was to put furniture in there. You know, I would have couches and bookshelves and offices and indoor swimming pools in the Lego mansion. Yeah, my mom would clean out butter bowls, she'd give them to me, and I'd put bowls on the platforms, and the little Lego people could jump in the water and go swimming. Is that creative or what? I'd build these mansions, and my brothers would threaten to destroy them, and it was a real fiasco. But I also built Lego spaceships, designed my own, yes. Um, At the age of like 9 or 10, was offered a job with the Lego company. When you grow up, come join us, you know. Yeah, right. And they sent me a few free Legos. But I would make these Lego spaceships where the wings would go up and down and the wheels were retractable. It was so cool, and I'd play for hours. I love Legos still to this day because it fosters creativity in the 42-year-old or the child. Okay? When my nephew uh, my nephew Jake loves Legos, so even if he says to me, Aunt Shelley, would you go buy me the $300 set of Legos? Oh, yeah, sure, Jake, just so we can build them together, you know? Legos are awesome, but they remind us of something. When I say that I created Lego mansions, I'm not really speaking accurately. Because the Lego mansions that I would make, to make those things, number one, I was using a brain that came to me by God. Did we have anything to do with our brains being created? No. God gave me my mind, and my brain is creative because I'm made in his image. Number two, when I was building Lego mansions and spaceships, the Legos were actually designed by another person, right? Mr. Christensen, in the 1930s or 40s, came up with this concept, began marketing Legos, and I researched this. Legos are actually made of crude oil out of the ground. Oil is refined and taken out of the ground, and that plastic, certain type of plastic, is taken and heated to 449.5 degrees Fahrenheit, put into a Lego mold, applied 50 to 150 tons of pressure to one Lego piece. It comes out, it's cooled after a few seconds, and sent down the conveyor belt. My point is this. Legos are made from something only God can make. Are you with me? People don't really create anything. We just kind of rearrange what God already made. Do you get that? Like even computer chips and clothing, no matter what it is that you think of, the stuff that we make really comes from stuff that God made. So There's no hope for us to do anything unless God first doesn't give us what we need to make it. And this point reminds us that we can do nothing actually without God. Only God Almighty can make something out of nothing. So let the Legos remind you that so often we are apt as Christians to begin feeling like we're the boss. I'm the boss of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do with my life, right? And we forget to go back to square one and remember that it is time for us to let God be God. Amen? You say, well, Shelly, I'm not like that. I mean, I believe in Genesis. I know that God is God and He alone makes things out of nothing. I treat Him as God in my life. I don't treat myself like I'm the boss. Really? People tell me I'm kind of bossy. (laughs) Am I? Um I want us to think seriously and let the Holy Spirit illuminate to us. Are we living like we are God, who alone... Listen, God is transcendent over the universe. Only He deserves to be the boss. Amen? And when we start making ourselves boss, we get into big, big trouble. Now, how do we make ourselves boss? Well, I thought of three things. Number one, are plans. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, "There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of what? Death." Now this verse tells us that a person can sincerely think they are doing the right thing, and can end up dead, destroyed, the wrong way. Sincerity is not all that we need. We need to submit everything that we have to God. Now, when we think about our plans and whether we're acting like the boss or letting God be God, let's, let's bring this down to the nuts and bolts of everyday life. When was the last time you spent a large sum of money? More money than you normally spend for utilities or groceries or filling up, well, I guess it would be filling up your gas tank. Okay, so, but when was the last time you spent a large sum of money? Think about it. Whose plan was it? Why did you buy it? Did you submit it to the boss of the universe first or just go do it on an impulse? Plans. Think about yesterday evening, the hours between 6 and 9 p.m. Try to remember what you were doing, where you were at. 6 and 9 p.m. yesterday evening. Why did you do what you did in those three hours? Is it because you just did what you felt like? Or did you submit the plan for Saturday evening to God? You know, God's okay with recreation. But the point is, everything I do ought to fall under the plan of God. And if I'm living out how I spend my money and how I spend my time without consulting God, but doing what I want to do, then who does Shelley Prindle believe is God? Shelley Prindle. And then we as Christians wonder why God doesn't seem to be who he's supposed to be. Sometimes it's our fault, right? I guess I should say all the time it's our fault. How about when it comes to accountability? Because Hebrews 4.13, this verse is just riveting. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do or with whom we must give an account. Isn't that something? So let me ask you a question. That conversation you had with that person a few days ago that wasn't exactly the most God-honoring conversation in the world, did we really think that we would only answer to ourselves for what we said? Or did we know we were going to answer to God for those careless words? Think about it. Accountability. The secret thoughts and the habits and the sins that we commit, that we think, that we say, do we really live like we know we're accountable to God for those things? Or do we somehow think that we're only accountable to ourselves? Because if we're not living as if everything is accountable before God, then we're living like we're God and not like He is. What about this? What about passion? Philippians 3.19 says about the enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the context. It says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Now, the reason Paul uses this analogy is, think about your stomach. We eat, okay? I went to the country buffet today and ate. And I filled up my stomach pretty good. You know, more than it should have been. You can fill up your stomach and feel so stuffed and you're like enjoying it as it's going in. Four to six hours later, what happens? How many times have you ever eaten and said, I'll never be able to eat again? Four to six hours later? I'm grazing for potato chips and, you know, different items. Paul uses this this analogy because what he's trying to say is, if we live for any pleasure other than what God's pleasures are, we will gorge and feed ourselves and maybe temporarily enjoy it. But all that's going to happen is, a short time later, we're going to be left empty and hungry again. Amen? And this is important for young people to know and remember. We can give in to all kinds of things that the world says we need, you know, to drive us, to make us happy, to give us pleasure. But unless our pleasure is derived in glorifying God, I'm going to tell you something, we're going to end up empty. So when we let God be God, when we realize that He alone is the one that can make something out of nothing, that He truly is the boss and that I need to put myself in the proper place, life can change. And for a lot of us, including me, this was very um, convicting for me. And God changed some things in my life. And when I asked Him to help me with these things, He helped. And sometimes it's painful. But it makes our life what it's supposed to be. We need to remember that only God is really God. Now, the Bible goes on to say that he made everything by the breath of his mouth. Then it says he lays up the deep in storehouses. And it tells us next, in consideration of the fact that he made everything out of nothing by his word, it says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Does that sound like a commandment to you? Right? You think of all the commandments in the Bible. Did you ever think of this being a commandment? The psalmist said, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of God. And what I want to express to you this evening is what God has really ground into my heart lately is we should have a posture of awe towards God. In other words, we should be waking up every morning, going to bed every night, and all the moments in between, even if we're not physically doing so, and actually saying the words. We ought to be living in a state that says, God, you are the Lord, and I stand in amazement of what you're going to do and what you are doing. How many people live like that? No, instead we're living in, oh, Right? We're supposed to live in a state of awe. Now, exactly what does that mean? Well, listen, in the church of Jesus Christ today, I fear that we are standing in a posture of manipulation. Would anybody agree with me? In the church of Jesus Christ at large today, as I analyze and look at things against God's word, we have gotten way off base. And what people, you go to Christian bookstores and you listen to preachers on television, and oftentimes what the goal is, I want God to do this for me. I'm going to go to Jesus because this is what I want my life to be like, and I'm going to go to Him and ask Him to make my life that way. Who's God there? Okay, did you forget that we are just pea brains? Did we forget that He is the one who knows everything. And yet we go to God and we buy books and we listen to sermons and our our hope, the end result that we're looking for is, I want my life to be the way I want it to be. So Jesus, I'm going to go to you and will you teach me some good moral principles Will you teach me how to live my life? Will you be my teacher so that I can live a life that will end up making me feel fulfilled and happy? And people can look at me and say, oh, there's Shelly Prindle. What a good person. That's not a posture of awe. That's a posture of manipulation. Amen? We are supposed to stand in awe of God and say, God, what do you want? Because I can't believe how big and awesome you are. What are you going to do? What is your purpose in all of this? Stand in awe of God. Now, He'll shake up your world when you do that. This is what He wants for us. Jesus, I'm going to say something that's very important. Too many people in today's society believe that Jesus is just a great teacher. Or that he is just a great prophet. Wrong. Jesus Christ is not a great teacher among many teachers, good and bad. Jesus Christ does not stand in a category with Confucius. Or Aristotle. Or John Wesley. Or Dr. Phil. Seriously. Seriously. Many people treat Jesus and the Word of God the same way they would treat advice from some of those people. Jesus, let me take your moral teachings and let me apply them to make life what I want it to be. Wrong. Now, I know that God meant for us to live in a a posture of awe and not to manipulate Jesus for what we want because when Jesus came to this earth, when God actually walked the earth in human flesh, one of the first things He taught His disciples was, Don't look at me as just a teacher. If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, it's a very common passage that we read about Jesus calming the sea. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. Jesus had been teaching all day to many people, and he was tired. And when evening came, now check this out, this is very important, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the sea. And so they left the crowd and they did what Jesus said and they all sailed out onto the Sea of Galilee. Now they get out there and Jesus falls asleep in the stern of the boat. Do you remember this story? And as he's falling asleep and they're going along, suddenly a furious storm came up. Bible scholars would tell us that yes, This kind of storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of pictured there for you, could have definitely been deadly. The boat was filling up with water, the winds were blowing, and things were getting rough, and Jesus was asleep in the stern. Now, his closest followers, the disciples, are on the boat with the God of the universe, all right? And the the storm starts blowing, and they get frantic. I never get frantic. (laughs) frantic is my middle name okay so they get frantic and the bible says that what they do is they go to jesus who's sleeping and they wake him up now i like to say i don't picture that what they did was just go over and say excuse me jesus okay i'm just picturing that they are humans right jesus is over there sleeping and they're probably oh jesus and they're shaking him. Can you picture him getting down in his face and shaking him? And he's like... And they said, this is so pivotal. Depending on your version, it may say something different. Mine says they looked at him. They shook him frantically. And they said, teacher or master or rabbi. But the Greek root is all the same. They addressed him as a teacher. They said, teacher... Don't you care if we drown? Don't you care that we're dying? You have to put yourself in the moment. Would you have done that? But it's critical what they called him. And as soon as they woke him up, what Jesus did, I love this because it ties with what we just read in Psalm 33. I love how the Old and New Testament go together. Didn't we just read that he lays up the deep in storehouses? He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. Why can Jesus control the waters? Anybody? Because he made them. Ah, everything goes back to the beginning. He made the hydrogen and the oxygen. He made the wind and the waves. So he gets up in the boat. His, His disciples are frantic and they're calling him teacher. And he stands up. He rebukes the wind and he speaks to the storm and he says, calm down, be still. Can you imagine being on that sea? And in an instant, everything grows calm. Now, put yourself in that place and you're standing there, okay? I love this part. Jesus looks at them and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still not have the faith? Okay? Then the Bible tells us, Luke actually adds that they were amazed and afraid. But what does it say happened next? They became very much afraid or amazed and they said to each other. Somebody tell me, what did they say to each other? Did they say, teacher, again? What'd they say? What's your Bible say? Who is this? Their posture changed from one of you're a good teacher to one of who in the world are you? Amen? This is is pivotal. And I want to pause here and I want to say this very, very slowly. Jesus is God. Whose idea was it to go out into the storm whose idea Jesus did he take them out in the storm because he didn't love them but he purposely took them out into what was going to become a storm why did he do it to get to the heart of the issue and teach them I am God quit playing around with ideas of me Quit pretending I'm about being a good moral teacher and get to realize that I manipulate and have command and control over the entire universe because I made it. Now this is pivotal. He took them out into the storm so that they could stand and say, It was a different kind of fear. They weren't afraid of dying now, were they? Because He just saved them. So what kind of fear was this? This was a healthy and right fear. It's an illustration. When we teach our kids, you should fear the Lord. They're like, "Uh, should I shake before Him? Maybe sometimes, but the kind of fear they have here, they're not afraid of death. He just saved them from death. This is a healthy fear that says, God, you can do anything. You are the boss. You are the one I have to stick with. I am helpless without you. I'm drowning in the storm without you. And that is what you want me to see. I want to say something tonight. In my life lately, God has put me out into some storms. How many of you? You've been in some storms? Let's just testify. Yes, we are. When God puts you out on the Sea of Galilee and you're in the middle of a storm... It's not to kill you, although sometimes it feels like it, doesn't it? He takes us out into the storm to show us our picture of Him needs to be a whole lot bigger. Amen? I don't know what it is that you're going through tonight, but I know that the Holy Spirit is speaking to hearts, and I know God wants this emphasized. Whatever storm you're out on, it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because God wants to teach you he's bigger than the storm. He wants to teach you he's bigger than anything. And he'll shake up and strip away and knock down any concept of him that you have that is less than God. Amen? Amen? A posture of awe instead of one of manipulation. It's a critical, critical point. And it all ties back to him being in control. I want to tell you something. You know, one of the things that I struggle with is uh being a diabetic, disease. You know, people struggle with financial problems, relational problems, problems in our bodies, problems in our homes, right? Who made my body? Jesus. See so you know how to take care of it? Amen, he does. It all goes back to the beginning. Whatever your situation is, who created families? Jesus. Can He take care of your family? Yes. Who created the mind that He gave you? Who told us to fill the earth and subdue it, to work, to have jobs, to go out, to be a part of His plan? Jesus. Can He control your job situation? Does He know where you're supposed to be? Amen. Amen? Everything. He made everything out of nothing. And He wants us to be in a posture of awe, not of manipulation. Now, the Bible says, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why should we? It says, because he spoke and it was done. Why should I be in awe of him? Because he commanded and it stood fast. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it? Now, how many of us in this room would like to be able to speak and something happens? Mothers, wouldn't you love to say, room, be clean. Child, be quiet. Husband? No, no, no. Okay, so anyway, you you know, you would love to speak and have something just happen. Wouldn't that be awesome? Did we just see this illustrated in Mark chapter 4? Okay, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's showing us there that he is the creator. You know, Jesus was the active agent in the creation of the universe. So he's showing us there, I made it, I control it. He speaks and it's done. He commands And amen, it stands fast. I'm going to tell you what, that is some powerful word. I've never seen a word like that. I've never known anybody that could speak into existence things that didn't exist before. Do you realize back at the scene of creation, God spoke, let there be light, and there it was. I love the part, you know, I personally love fish and sharks and all that kind of stuff. I love when it says, he just looked at the seas that he made and he said, let them team with all the creatures of the deep. Can you imagine? And they all just came into existence. This is incredible. And hopefully you're sitting there saying, man, Shelley, that's some powerful word. Yes, it is. And I want to take you, you can turn there if you want to, to First Peter Chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, here's what the Bible says. We're going to connect this to the Word. I like to tie, you know, you should let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? Keep it all together. Here's what Peter said. He said, you have been born again. Now, hopefully everybody in this room has been born again. We'll give you the chance to be if you're not. But when Jesus, when Peter was speaking, he's speaking to Christians. He says, you've been born again. Now, everybody in this room understands that the first time that we're born, we're born into sin. Amen? I am born a mess, and God has to save a wretch like me. We're born first into the flesh, and we need to be born a second time into the by the Spirit of God. Okay, so he says, you have been born again. Now, I love this. I, I, I get chills when I think about this. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, imperishable and perishable, they're kind of big words. How many of you, when you see big words, you're just like, okay, I'm moving on? Big words are sometimes the most exciting. This word actually means in the Greek, not able to be corrupted, Not able to be tainted. Not able to be debased or deformed. Not able to be killed. You have been born again of what kind of seed? Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. And how does that happen? Through what? Here it is again. Through the living and enduring Word of God. Now I want to pause and say something. This Bible that I'm holding up, that I love to carry with me, this Bible is the written Word of God. It is living and active. It is not a guidebook for life. Not a history book. This is a living book. This is the written Word of God. It is the only tangible thing on earth since Jesus has left that connects me to the living God of the universe. Amen? We should love it. We should cling to it. We should read it more than we watch television. We should read it more than we listen to music. We should, this, this is our lifeline. It is that one tangible thing. This is the written Word of God. Now Jesus is the living Word of God. Amen? And how are we born again? Jesus plants an imperishable seed in us through the living and enduring Word of God. Isn't that beautiful? A seed that never dies. I need that. Do you need that? How many of you in this room are aware of your own mortality? And at the end of our days, we face this great, ch- this great chasm called death. And when you face that chasm, if you don't have the imperishable seed planted in you, your physical death will lead to spiritual death forever and ever and ever. There is only one way to cross that chasm called death and live again. When you get an imperishable, incorruptible, undying seed planted in you. Isn't that beautiful? Picture this. When we get saved, that seed through Jesus, through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, by reading and believing this word, gets planted in me. And when they put my body in the ground... Although, like I always say, Jesus is going to come back before I have to die. Him and I, you know, we have a thing, okay? (laughs) But if if he doesn't, and they put my body in the ground, it will begin to disintegrate. But hold on to your seats, because it's coming out again. Amen? There's a great pastor friend that I know, and he always said, I want to be in a cemetery when Jesus comes back. I want to be standing there and I want to watch the bodies rise from the ground. 1 Thessalonians 4:16 and 17 is a passage I often refer to when I'm speaking because I, I was so thankful that pastors spoke about that this morning. We don't think enough and talk enough about death and heaven and the second return of Jesus Christ. He could come back at any moment. We ought to be living like it. And you know what our hope is? For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ. People who have already died and their bodies are in the ground, but they are saved. The dead in Christ, their bodies will rise first. Isn't that something? Their bodies are going to come out of the ground and we're going to watch that happen. And if we're still alive and left, then we'll be caught up in kind of like the second round. And in my years of teaching young people and teenagers, I'll have have kids say to me, well, Mrs. Prindle, how could that be true? What if their body was blown apart by a bomb? What if they were sprinkled at sea? What if, what if this? What if that? What if they were burned in a fire? It all goes back to the beginning, doesn't it? Who made the molecules of our body? Do you think it's anything? If He made you out of nothing, you don't think He can take what's left and make it right again? Isn't that beautiful? This is a physical, real thing. And I don't think we teach our young people this enough. I know from years in Christian schools, kids from all different churches, they don't live with that reality. They're afraid to die. They don't want to go to heaven because what if this, what if that, what if I don't get... Listen, there is a one-to-one correspondence between the body you see in front of you right now, Shelley Prindle, and the body that you're going to be with in heaven. We're going to be with each other. God resurrects. Why? Because of that imperishable seed that death cannot take away. Isn't that beautiful? You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For remember this, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you, Peter said. And that's the part that gets that powerful word that makes something out of nothing. That powerful word that plants an imperishable seed in a human body. Allowing them to live. That continuum. That seed. That word is the word that's being preached to you right now. Do you see how God makes His personal to you? He doesn't just say, there's the Word and it's out there somewhere. No, God loves you enough that tonight at Norwyn Alliance Church in North Huntington, He's ordained that the Word of God would go forth. And it's going forth. And this is the Word that's being offered and preached to you. Who needs the Word of God tonight? Who needs that hope in their heart? This is the Word that was preached to you. Now, the question becomes, Shelly, I need that word. I need to be in awe of God instead of awe. I need that imperishable seed to be made real to me again. I need God's word to come in and do something in my storm. That word is here in this room right now. How fast can it make a difference in your life? Well... If you turn with me to John chapter 4, we were in Mark chapter 4, now we're going to go to John chapter 4. Let me show you how fast that can happen and what God can do. In John chapter 4, beginning at verse, don't have my reading glasses on, but I think it's 46. By the way, this is not just a large print Bible, it's a giant print Bible, and I'm still saying, I think it's 46. Okay. This is the healing of the nobleman's son or the royal official's son. So just suffice it to say that this guy was powerful and wealthy, okay? He would have had access to all the medical advances and everything that money could buy to help his son. And yet his son lay in Capernaum dying on the point of death. So the nobleman hears that Jesus is in Cana of Galilee and he travels 15 miles by foot to go find this Jesus. And he goes to Jesus and the Bible tells us, he says to Jesus, please come these 15 miles back to Capernaum. Please come to my son. He's ready to die. Now, we should read the Bible in its context and then say, God, how do you apply this to my life, right? You may not be physically dying tonight or you might be. You may be Dying emotionally tonight in a lot of different ways. Dying spiritually tonight. So put in there what you need. But this nobleman's son says, I've exhausted the resources of the world. I've done everything that I can do. Now, Jesus, will you come these 15 miles, come back with me to Capernaum, and please heal my son. I have no other hope. Jesus at first rebukes him. And he takes that very well and he says, even so, Lord, I believe you can do it. Come heal my son. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at the nobleman. I I just, I, I would love to have been there. He looked at him and he said, go. Your son lives. Listen to that. Go. Your son lives. And the nobleman believed it in that instant. And so he started back 15 miles toward Capernaum. And before he reaches there, he meets some of his servants midway. And the servants are no doubt excited and they're saying, your son is alive, he's been made well. And the nobleman checks with them, and they kind of have a discussion and they discern and they find out and they realize, when was he, when was he made well? And the nobleman narrows it down and realizes he was made well the instant my Jesus said, go, your son lives. Fifteen miles, smashed to complete oblivion, didn't matter the space, the distance between the two. Smashed to oblivion is the span between the point of need and the Savior of the needy. You know, light travels 186,000 miles a second. Isn't that something? In the time it takes me to say one, light has just gone 186,000 miles. It can circle the earth seven and a half times in a second. It goes 11 million miles in one minute. But I know the maker of light. What's faster than the speed of light, my friends? The Word of God rushing to the point of your need. What do you need tonight? What is dying inside of you and you need to go to Jesus the Savior and say, please help me. And Jesus is saying to you this evening, go. You have hope. Go. You can live. And he does what he says he's going to do. Last part of Psalm chapter 33, after it talks about all these great things that God can do, it says this. It says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. But before that, I want to go back there. The Bible says... The Lord uh, nullifies the counsel of the nations. does not know what it says? He frustrates the plans of peoples. Does it make you feel good to know that there is no plan in hell currently? There is no device of Satan. There is no demonic power. There is no evil person who's given in to the plan of Satan. There is no circumstance. There is no trouble. There is no issue. There is no illness. There is no problem. There is no deficit. There is nothing that is going to do anything to your life except that God works it together for the good that we would be more like Jesus. Amen? He is going to frustrate the plans of every power of hell. The devil thinks he's getting away with it, just like he did when Jesus was on the cross. But does he get away with it? No way. And remember that. Because 1 Peter 1.3 says that you have been born again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, it looked like the enemy had won when they put Jesus in the tomb. But his resurrection proved what? He didn't win. And maybe you feel like everything is in the tomb right now, but God is over it. And through His resurrection, we are born into a living hope. God is going to frustrate all the evil plans of the world. I don't know how He does it, but I stand on Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. It says, For we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose. I love this. Who worketh? All things after the counsel of his will. Who worketh the holocaust after the counsel of his will? Who worketh sickness after the counsel of his will? Who worketh any problem that we face and any plan the enemy brings? He worketh it all after the counsel of his will. But unlike those plans that he will frustrate and undo and make work for his will, the plans of his heart stand forever and forever. Is that beautiful? Now, I love the way he says it. The nuance here is amazing. He tells us first that his counsel stands forever, but then he makes it personal and he says, my plan will go forth from generation to generation. In other words, this isn't just about some high and lofty thing is going to go forward. I'm going to fulfill it from one generation. And what's a generation made of? People. Isn't that beautiful? From your generation, Shelley, to the generation after you, in every individual person's life, my plan and my counsel is going to stand.